Konnichiwa, and welcome back to the Oki Oki Show. I'm Donna. And I'm Brandon. And this is your monthly Japanese film podcast made by two Oklahoma natives who uh, enjoy using this time to really delve into another culture and another film set. It's definitely kind of just a, not just a, but it's a it's definitely a pastime for us to get to kick back and, and watch some movies that I think otherwise we may have not made the time for. And so it's nice to carve out some of our time and use it in this way. It is June. So our scheduled programming is the 2000 film Battle Royale. Before we get to talking about that, what else have you been watching or, or reading or, or just uh, enjoying here in terms of media? I've been doing a lot of reading for reviews. So you can always check those out at the AP Book Review Hub. I feel like looking into your Twitter would probably be a better place to find your reviews. That is true. I try to share all of my reviews within a day or two on my Twitter, which is at deadwords, D-E-A-D-W-O-R-D-Z. Any highlights to talk about in terms of book reviews? Well, and then I was going to say I've I've also been watching a lot of M. Night Shyamalan films with you for The Bargain Den at Night, our special um, foray into M. Night's catalog of films and that's been probably the highlight for me. I'm really enjoying that. How about you, Brandon? Yeah, I have been um, watching a handful of different things uh, that I've, I've definitely been enjoying. Uh, for the other podcast that I do with Nick, uh, 2D or Not 2D, uh, the film for June is It's Such a Beautiful Day, directed by Don Hartsfeld. Yeah, I really, uh, really love that film. That is probably, no, definitely one of my all-time favorite movies. I hadn't seen it in maybe a decade, and I really enjoyed it, and I've watched it, I think, three times in the last month, at least twice. I know I watched it with you once, which was really nice because we had both seen it before. It was really good. It was better than I remembered it. I recommend it. I recommend it very highly. It is a weird little animated hour-long vignette into a man named Bill. I don't know. It's something special. It's something else. If you've ever seen Rejected Cartoons, this is an animated short in the early 2000s. You can see that on YouTube. Um, same director and animator as that. And the film is called It's Such a Beautiful Day, just to reiterate. Uh, I've also, I went through and watched most of the work of Rose Glass. Uh, she is a director that in 2019 put out their first full-length film, Saint Maud. Uh, that was the first of their work that I watched. It was a very good, scary film uh, that I believe uh, is a Amazon Prime exclusive. I don't think it's an exclusive. I don't know. It was on Amazon Prime where I watched it. And uh, very good, very spooky. It made me go back and watch all of their short films. So I'm um, going to be keeping an eye out for more stuff from Rose Glass, and I, I recommend St. Maud as well. Other than that, I've been reading The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. How exciting. I love Kurt Vonnegut. I've only ever read one book, so I guess I don't really know, but... I I've only pretended to read one other book by him, so I don't know. <laughs> With that out of the way, uh, we are going to spoil Battle Royale. So if you haven't seen it yet and want to watch it before we get into it, then stop the episode here and go watch it. Otherwise, just know we will be doing a quick overview of the plot. Also, before we jump into it, this film is very violent um, and contains a lot of things that would be upsetting to a lot of people. 
including, um, which probably I don't think we're going to be getting into too much of that. I think a little bit with some of the stuff you're talking about, but we are going to be talking about topics, uh, or the film does cover topics again, very violent, uh, and covers things like suicide. So just kind of a heads up if you do want to watch it. So this originally was released in 2000 and it's from director Kinji Fukasaku. Let's see, anything else to note before we get into the plot? I don't think so. The The time is in the near future, and Japan has kind of this authoritarian government, I guess, and they have passed the Battle Royale Act, which means that class can be picked, a junior high class, to battle it out in a last man, last man standing style free-for-all. And then I guess also like, other people can volunteer to be part of it too, but typically it is one class that battles it out and you can only have one survivor. And it, it is only children that can volunteer, um, if I'm not mistaken. Right, um, like other other school age. Under the age of 20, I believe is, mm. is the designation. I, I believe that this, this authoritarian rule of this Battle Royale Act is put in place basically because the youth have turned up their nose to the adults of the world and do not wish to uh, obey them anymore. They're not, you know, in large number, not going to school and not behaving proper properly and not this class particularly, but just at large. So those darn youths, this is a way of trying to get them into shape and to behave better. Battle Royale focuses on the movie focuses on one particular class, class three B that is chosen they're on their way to what they think is a field trip and they wake up in a classroom on a deserted island where they are told that it's battle royale that's what you're here for and their old teacher kitano which is played by beat takeshi or kitano yeah i got beat back in the mix if you have listened to the show for a while if you watched fireworks or um hakari What's the name of the movie? Which one? Fireworks. Oh, he... Hikaido. I don't remember. Ah, beans. I'll look it up. You mean the Japanese name? Yeah. Hibana, maybe? Hanabi. Hanabi. Why did I do that? Hanabi. I switched them. Hibana. Hanabi. (laughs) If you... Basically, uh, Takashi has... Takashi beat... Beat Takashi has been in a number of movies that we've watched, including the 2017 remake of Ghost in the Shell. Oh, right. That was the other thing really recently. Big fan of his work. He's back in the mix for for Battle Royale. So they explain the rules, and while this happens, two of the classmates die at the hands of Kitano. One, uh, who's just not following directions, and he kills her. The other, who he's using as kind of a a sacrifice to show the kids that these collars that are attached to their necks now can and will explode when he so chooses. There's a monitor on all of them. They will be watched and could be killed if they do not cooperate. It should be noted that Beat is playing a former teacher of this class. And the reason that he has kind of volunteered this class for the Battle Royale Act is because they were awful to him. They eventually made him retire from teaching or at least quit that particular position, culminating ultimately with one of the students who ran behind him and uh, cut open the back, his backside with a knife. And so that is one of the first students to die, actually, is the one who cut him. That is the one who's chosen as the uh, example of the caller's self-destruct. So Right. Not pretty. 
Not pretty again. Now, this kid happens to be our main character, Shuya's best friend. Shuya quickly ends up paired with Noriko, who is the girl his best friend had a crush on. And it kind of seems like maybe there's something between Noriko and Shuya as well. But they find each other and they um, are determined to stick together and protect each other. They Each student is let go from the classroom one by one. Again, they have three days. And if more than one person is standing at the end of the three days, they all die. Um, they are tossed bags seemingly at random with each one having a random weapon on the inside as well as provisions, a map of the island. They also have to keep moving every so often uh, at increasingly fast intervals, different squadrons of the island, different squares, so to speak, are uh, called upon as no-go areas that will eventually, if you're in that area, you have so much time to get out before your necklace kills you. So you have to keep moving, you have to keep going, and you have to keep killing. I don't know. Do we, I don't think we really want to go beat by beat of no, all. <laughs> but I, I think it is important to note that Shuya and Noriko don't. They're not actively participating. They're not yes. trying to kill their classmates. Other classmates are taking this quite seriously and killing a lot but a lot of classmates just kind of team up and hunker down and try to like find a way off the island basically mm -hmm. and the weapons range vastly so there's two quote-unquote exchange students so people who are not in their class but who are in the battle royale one of them is shogo he is uh he won a different battle royale and he ends up helping out Shuya and Noriko. Um, the other guy is really spooky and scary and... Signed up for the thing himself just because he just wanted... Just for fun. To, just for fun of it. <laughs> and he's killing lots of people. Yeah, I don't know. The, the weapons range vastly. So super scary guy, foreign or super scary exchange student has like legit weapons. I think he starts out with like a katana and ends up taking someone's AK. He, he actually starts out with a fan. Just a paper oh. fan mm. and then ends up disarming a whole group and getting grenades and a couple of submachine guns. Um, right. Yes. That's yeah, that's a thing. Um, our two main characters, Shuya and Noriko, end up with like a pot lid and binoculars. binoculars. Yeah. So that, that gives you an idea of the range. Ultimately, what we kind of work towards is the fact that those, you know, all, everybody dies shy of our two main characters and the two exchange students um, through various means. Again, some commit suicide. Others are killed by other students. I mean, it is a battle royale. So very violent. Some enjoy, some do not. And it's, I think the for me, the best way I can kind of describe it is almost uh, Pulp Fiction vignettes as far as like, just kind of popping into different scenes of violence and action. And each time we are given a little update as to what student that was and why or how they, I don't think it's how they died, but that they have died. Ultimately the main two characters and the former winner team up, make a plan to get off of the Island that involves hacking and disarming the necklaces. So they kill the super scary exchange student, which is just what I'm going to call him now. Uh, Shogo, the, prior winner returned essentially fakes 
killing Shuya and Noriko, like he's turned on them now that the game is nearing its end of three days. Kitano, it calls off the game immediately. Tells uh, all the soldiers to go home. Yeah, just done. Okay, we have our winner. Leave. And he stays behind to confront Shogo, the winner. That is when it is revealed that our two main characters are still alive. Kitano kind of reveals that he has somewhat of an affection, affinity towards the main girl. Um, Noriko. Noriko. And has painted this beautiful painting showing the death of all the other students except for her. And it's really neat because we get to see one of Beat's paintings that we saw like in Hanabi. Now it's very specific to this film. What ends up happening is he lunges at Noriko and then is murdered uh, by our main character who then commits his first murder of the film. It is at this point the three of them are able to get off the island using a boat. The former winner uh, does die on the boat and then the other two are on the run. Yeah, they're listed as murder suspects. Yeah, and so they cannot be, they can't stay in one place. They're always going to be fugitives, and that's where the story ends. Brandon, what did you think of this movie? You know, I liked it. I thought it was really fun. I think that it was somewhat kind of hyped up for me a little bit. Like, I, mm. this had been on my radar for probably about, a, about 10, 11 years. So I've been wanting to watch it for a long time, and I think there's something about hyper-violent films in general that, I mean, you really kind of get what you're you're going for with this one. Like, it's, it is a, it's a murder massacre, and if you like watching really bloody stuff and kind of a cool, like, people-have-to-be-violent type of movie, then this is perfect. You know, these characters are not given much of a choice in what they have to do for a long while, and I, I think that there is a kind of violent fantasy thing that this definitely scratches that itch of. Mm. But at the same time, I, I think it kind of fell short of being something more special that I was wanting it to be. What about you? Yeah, I'd say really that exactly. It's it's a really cool idea, and as far as I can tell, this was kind of the original manifestation of that in a movie. Um it changed the definition of battle royale. Like now everyone recognizes that as this idea um, because it got popularized. And so like that's, I'm really kind of grateful for having this medium of storytelling like via battle royale. But the movie itself might have been a little overhyped for me as well. And I mostly just wish that I'd kind of had more of a chance to get to know all the characters. That said, it did really well for that. There were 42 students. And I do feel like we got to know a lot of them in less than two hours. Mm -hmm. But I think that's what's so special to me about other Battle Royale type movies that I've watched is that you really grow to love the characters. And so when they're faced with these choices, it's... Uh, more impactful. You know, that's really interesting because I actually had somewhat of an opposite takeaway from it. I thought that this movie did better at letting me know these characters than a lot of other Battle Royale movies in just a short amount of time. Whereas I don't think it tried to make me care more than I was supposed to, but told me a lot in a short amount of time. That is true. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because that actually leads me to our first topic, which is where I had first heard of this film and what its notoriety had been for me for a long time. Uh, is that this is a film that is largely credited as the film that inspired the Hunger Games. That that uh, I almost said Stephanie Meyer. That's not correct. Um, mm-hmm. Susan Collins. 
the writer of the Hunger Games, a lot of people, especially in film circles, say that this is a clear indication that she plagiarized this piece of work. Uh, not going maybe as far as saying the word plagiarism, but being like, like oh, this is just a ripoff of Battle Royale. Mm. And it's really interesting because it actually kind of speaks to what you had mentioned about this being the first instance of Battle Royale being used in media. And that is uh, actually very much not true. Oh, um, now it, Brandon's fact checking me. I know. I know. I love it. There has been, uh, I mean, Battle Royales in general have been. Uh, in and around in existence since uh, I think it was 264 BC. Uh, I should have known I was terribly wrong by the look you gave me when I said it was the first instance. I, and I tried to save myself and I was like, in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> 264 BC, I was right, yeah. I mean, Roman gladiator competitions very much existed in this manner, uh, even though it may have been closer to 1v1 or 2v2. I mean, mm. X number of people enter X number of people leave has definitely been a staple in and around our history for a very much for a very long time. And then as far as media goes, you have things, uh, the Mad Max movie that has the Thunderdome, um, oh. and then the running man and the long walk, both by Stephen King are both novels that were written prior to uh, battle Royale that involve again, X number of people enter X number leave, and then, I mean, in somewhat of a different prior, way. sorry, prior to the movie or the book or both? both, I guess they were close to each other. Yeah, both. But. And then, I mean, in a different fashion, but similar to it, there are films like uh, Death Race, pardon me, Death Race 2000 starring Sylvester, blah, starring Sylvester Stallone um, <laughs> is, I mean, a race that is, you know, more or less a, a race to the death with only one victor. Mm. So that's kind of my first topic is just really, I really kind of want to debunk that Suzanne Collins remotely stole anything from Battle Royale in terms of the Hunger Games. So going to talk a little bit about the Hunger Games, maybe spoiling that just as a heads up if you haven't seen those movies or read those books. Yeah, kind of the first item I wanted to talk about was just the Battle Royale aspect. Now, I will say that I don't think that there is a doubt that maybe Suzanne Collins had seen this film or watched or read the book. So, I mean, it, you know, it is likely that it may have been inspired. The Hunger Games may have been inspired by Battle Royale. There's no telling. I don't see anything wrong with that because every choice that the Hunger Games make is very, very different than the choices made in Battle Royale. To start with, you know, the Hunger Games focuses on Katniss Everdeen and PETA, which I don't remember PETA's last name. <laughs> PETA Bread. PETA Bread. And they both know each other going into their Battle Royale, but they are not necessarily familiar in an intimate way with any of the other competitors. Um, they are somewhat aware of because of their training and having to learn a little bit about them based on what Haymitch teaches them. However, they, unlike Battle Royale, Battle Royale, all of the contestants are best for, like they are a very tight knit class. Throughout the course of the film, we do see some uh, seams of distrust have been dis, you know sown between you know, I liked this boy, I liked this girl, and you screwed me over, blah, 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 what have you. Those kind of come and go. But the film starts with all 42 students, I'm sorry, 40 students, because the two exchange students are on a bus having a really good time. They are good, intimate friends. Yeah, like, just just to put it in perspective, a lot of times, like, the the people in your class or your homeroom are people you have spent hours a day with for 
years. Then you have the option as to how in which they go about killing each other. Obviously, you know, each has weapons that they can find and use whatever they wish to use. But in the Hunger Games, these are trained individuals who get to bring their preferred weapons into the Battle Royale. And that is not the case with Battle Royale. Battle Royale is, these again, are just students. Uh, some of them have some uh, athletic abilities that kind of end up like helping out a little bit, but not really a major focus of the film by any means. So then you have a very big difference as, as far as these individual characters and how they operate and function as individuals. The Hunger Games really literally has trained killers going to fight each other, whereas Battle Royale has children, I mean, mm. <laughs> who did not know this was happening one moment and then were thrown into it the next. Yeah, good point. Lastly, and I think this is to me the biggest distinction, is it is true that both of these films take place in a quote-unquote dystopian type future that is, you know, not the future we would want to have, hence, you know, dystopian. However, Battle Royale takes place in a, I mean, very near one-to-one -one replica of our current reality. I mean, mm. shy mm -hmm. of who is in charge of what. And I mean, I guess you could say the necklaces are somewhat advanced technology because they're, I mean, killing machines. However, I don't, there was nothing about them that was so far gone. Like the Hunger Games takes place in an invisible dome that is an electric field and they have, I mean, more or less like magical futuristic technology that we can't even mm. fathom that kind of technology. Yeah, like drops you can pour on wounds to close them up. Like that's not existing in Battle Royale. Right. And I mean, there was no, you know, there is a sentiment that these Battle Royale are known to the public in Battle Royale, but it is not televised like the events of the Hunger Game. Now, I think there is media coverage prior to and after, absolutely, that is made very clear. But I just found it kind of disheartening when I went about reading a number of reviews for this film. And again, that was the that was my introduction to it, was that this was a you know precursor for Suzanne Collins stealing this idea whole cloth. And that is just so untrue to me. And I, I, I don't think that anybody inherently owns the notion of X number of people enter X number of people leave. I think that that is, is something that has been around longer than, I mean, before the common era. And mm -hmm. it, it's just kind of frustrating to, to see something. It's, it feels very much as though when I see people say that now, I'm thinking, well, you haven't either seen either film or like, it's such a weird thing. It just kind of feels like a, like dog piling on something that needs Absolutely no dogpiling. Yeah, and I I do get the similarities, but it feels to me like like an author taking another story and saying what if, which is kind of all stories, you know? You take a concept and you say what if, and then you explore it some other direction. And I feel like that's what happened. Is she said, okay, what if this happened with kids and they were forced to, but what if... It was televised and people could send items like it was a big football game and everyone's rooting for your team. Like, what if what if all this other stuff? And I think the last thing I want to say, just to kind of top it all off, is that if Suzanne Collins did go about writing The Hunger Games with the notion that, like, I'm going to take Battle Royale and I'm going to make it better, I think she succeeded. I think that The Hunger Games Ooh, hot is, take. is a demonstrably better told story uh, from start to finish. Now, I don't, you know, as far as the, I, I've only read the first book and then I've seen all of the films. 
I, I think the films kind of ended a little lackluster. I think that was more of a production side of things with the final film being or final book being split into two films. However, I mean, I, I think that the ideas and themes that the hunger games explores is so much more interesting and is so much more successful than battle Royale. I have to say a hundred percent agree. Now we're going to get into to some of those here in a little bit, but I think that the the class class struggle that is inherent to the Hunger Games story is told really really well and told in the structure of this ludicrous battle royale that people have to take place in. And so, um, yeah, if you're out there and you're saying that the Hunger Games stole the idea from Battle Royale, you I think are wrong, and I think that you should. Uh, think about stuff before you just jump on and say somebody stole something else. Good artists create great artists steal. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> What's your first thing? All right. My first thing is about movie ratings in Japan, because when I started to look further into Battle Royale, I saw that uh, it seems like there was kind of a fight over the rating of this movie. Mm. And I remember while we were watching it two or three separate times, it announced itself as an R15 plus rating. The director, when he was initially given this rating, tried to fight back against it. He was not successful and quickly had to back down because it was kind of, it was one of those things like if he kept pushing it, they might just go ahead and ratchet it up to the next rating higher. His whole idea was like, well, this is about 15 year olds. 15 year olds should be able to watch it. If you make it 15 plus, the target audience isn't seeing it. And they were like, yeah, it's not appropriate for 15 year olds. Don't know what to tell you. Let's make it 18. And he was like, no, it's okay. It's okay. Make it 15, 15 plus. And then he would go around and talk to students at schools and be like, sneak into the movie. <laughs> <laughs> But it got me thinking about the rating system because I realized that's something that doesn't come up in the movies we watch very often. I don't remember seeing another rating. That's a good point. Like uh, Suicide Club didn't have this kind of discretion warning up front, and that was far more violent than this. Yeah, and I'd say more upsetting. <laughs> no kidding. So the Ega Renri, that's hard for me to say. Kiko, which is shortened to Aaron. Thank you for the shortened version, because I can't say that. That's the film classification and rating organization in Japan. It's an independent, non-governmental organization, and it's been responsible for classifying and rating motion pictures since 1956. So we've talked before about how there was a lot of censorship in Japanese media around the time of World War II, and that is true for movies as well as books and news, all media, and so there really wasn't a lot of need for rating systems because what was put out was what the government wanted you to see. After the war, the Allied Occupation Forces censored films for a few years as well, but as Japan has ratified its new constitution and the Allied forces are getting ready to leave, the Allies say, hey, you should consider having your own film rating system in place like ours, the Motion Picture Association of America. And it should be like that. And so Japan did it. They created their own Ega, at the time it was Ega Rinri Kite Kanri 
Inkai. That was the predecessor to today's Aaron, and it was established in 1949, but it did not last because it was heavily criticized. Um, people were accusing them of having conflict of interest. The people that would go pre-screen the films and decide how to rate it for audiences um, because they were also people within the industry and there was issues with the funding that was kind of murky and rating systems rating systems are atrocious across the board like i mean that i don't know if you're are you are you gonna go into that at all like no so go right ahead well i just i mean especially in the united states um to be fair this was um off of the blueprints of the united states so here we go yeah i mean they are very very critical of things that have clearly major bias especially when it comes to sexual content Mm. Um, they very frequently will rate R or NC-17, anything that is gay or lesbian in terms of sexual content. And then they've also been uh, struck with criticism for going after films that will have sexual content, but it involves uh, something that necessarily visually depicting a woman receiving pleasure and that receives a higher rating than, say, a man receiving pleasure. Um, like this is more disturbing. Yes. It is more considered more inherently sexual, uh, in the eyes of the, uh, what's the American M M M well now it's the MPA. They dropped the a at the end. So yeah, the MPA. Yeah. yeah. They are a very busted, not great system that has a lot of flaws. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, it, I don't think it was as much about that as just generally being corrupt, like a lot of money flowing in the same pockets within the organization and not a lot of outside say. And so in 1956, they reorganized into Aaron and that became a self-financing body. And instead of using their own people, they recruited um, professors and lawyers and teachers outside of the movie industry to start being commission members. Then in 1962, the Ministry of Health and Welfare acknowledged and ratified the code of the National Association of Theater Owners of Japan. Goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so basically what that means is just theaters that are part of this association have to follow the rules, which are like not showing films that have not been rated by Aaron and not letting kids into movies that are rated 18 plus. Basically, hey, you want to be in the association, you have to follow these rules. And so so more or less the the responsibility kind of fell on the movie theaters or where was, was Right, oh. yeah, it's basically like Aaron's going to give you the rating and then you need to follow the rules and enforce it. Got it, okay. So it is the sole regulating body in Japan. There's not another one uh, since... May 1st, 1998, there are four categories. So much like the MPA, it changed over time. But the current categories are G for general, suitable, all ages, general audiences. PG-12, which is parental guidance for people under 12. R15+, which is for persons aged 15 and above only. No one under 15 is admitted. R18+, which is persons aged 18 and above only. No one under 18 admitted. Interesting. Now, I've seen places where maybe 15-year-olds could get in, or like under 15 to an R15 with an adult. Not 
100% sure where the line is with that. I have to imagine that that R15 is not very popular with filmmakers then. Right. Yes. And this was his big Complaint. issue. Yeah. yeah. Well, Because, I mean, you have a, an R15 is going to tell people who are over 18 that it is a little childish, but not so childish, as, but not so adult as for 15-year-olds to really even want to see it. It seems like you're that target market like you're gonna know you're in the target audience basically and that's gonna be so frustrating like i mean Mm -hmm. i i I can't imagine yeah and obviously it very closely actually mirrors the u.s's rating except that it's more strict on those higher two ratings i'd say like i know that i was able to go into r-rated films as a young teen if you had an adult with you, that's all you needed. And they would let you in. This is like, absolutely no. Like only adults are allowed to watch this. That makes more sense to me. I mean, it's just so silly. I mean, yeah, I had to sneak into an R rated film once and I had to ask a random person in line to be, to be my, will you be my mommy? Yeah. Um, (laughs) which boy, that is, uh, that is a pull to ask somebody because it was not, it was, it was someone who I'm sure was like, I am not old enough. And, but they rolled with the punches and they were like, your last name is now green. And I was like, thank you. (laughs) That's so nice. Here are the criteria by which films are classified, which deals with both the treatment and impact of the following items. Theme, language, sex, nudity, violence and cruelty, horror and menace, drug use, and criminal behavior. They also take into account the context and uh, just across the board, it is illegal to show, and I'm going to read directly here from Aaron's website. It is illegal to show indecent images of minors under the age of 18 and to show a work that is obscene. Real explicit sex and detailed exposure of sexual organs are not allowed, nor is pornography. Very strict on that. They probably don't even have the debate about... (laughs) Right. At least not to the same extent that we do in the U.S. right now of like women and men receiving different maturity ratings based on doing the same things. Yeah. So uh, that's really it. Um, also, check out our show notes because I've I took a screenshot from Aaron's website. And also there's a link there if you want to check it out yourself. There's a neat chart that they show all of the Japanese and foreign films that they've put out like that they've rated and has the Aaron stamp of approval for the past. Well, this one covers 2017 to 2021. And I just thought it was really neat and interesting that by far there are way more G rated films every single year across the board, both Japanese and foreign. So it was interesting. It's interesting to look at. Hmm. Well, uh, my next topic is going to be also another film that we are going to spoil because I actually watched the sequel to Battle Royale 1, which is Battle Royale 2 Requiem. Now, like I said, I'm going to be spoiling some aspects of this, not the entirety of it. And I feel okay doing that because I highly do not recommend this film. Um, (laughs) And that is kind of cruel for a number of reasons, and I apologize largely because the director was the same director of the original 2000 film, Kinji uh, Fukasaku. However, uh, after shooting only a single scene for the film, he did pass away from prostate cancer. And his son took up the mantle, uh, Kinta Fukasaku. Man, this, it is a film that is all over the place, and I feel like it took a lot of the decisions that the original Battle Royale made 
and really done goofed them. The film opens up one year uh, post the events of Battle Royale. At that moment, a number of large towers and skyscrapers collapse um, in acts of terrorism. And it turns out that the main two from the original film have started a group of counter anti-government terrorist group in the eyes of the government that is opposing the Battle Royale Act and is saying they're going to wage war on adults. (gasps) Kids v. adults. Yes. So this film really starts to to push in the kids versus adults aspect. And that's kind of my first problem with it because when the film focuses on that aspect of it and it becomes this like lifelong journey struggle thing, immediately my question comes to the fact that, um, well, you're not going to be kids forever. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the, mm. the, the, yes, the, that is a good point. <laughs> the clock does not stop. You will become your own enemy. So this one starts also on a bus and they go through a bridge and then they all students wake up on the bus still actually on this one and they're hurtled off and they're for like, they just suddenly change into camouflage clothes and their teacher is again, the one who uh, is going to be putting them through this battle royale. But the battle royale act has changed just in, as a, as a direct response to this new terrorist group. I could not for the life of you tell you why the teacher said that he was putting this class through this. The first thing he does is he lists off a bunch of countries. He says, Saudi Arabia, North Korea, and just country after country. And then he goes, what do these countries have in common? They've all been invaded by the United States. Equality is not a thing. And that is not referenced again, as far as I'm aware, in the rest of the film. How exciting, making a statement and then ignoring <laughs> it completely. It. I won't spend too long talking about this because it is just truly kind of all over the place. But... They have changed the rules. They are now, first off, their weapons are assigned, and uh, they all get machine guns. That seems almost more unfair somehow. Well, we'll get to why this is so different. Also, they're in the same fashion as the first one. They are called, you know, boy number one, girl number one, boy number two, girl number two. And that's their partner. And if one of them dies, they both die. Oh, my goodness. Now... That is a change of the rules for sure. They are taught this early on, not by anybody telling them this, but by the fact that one of them refuses to participate. And so that boy dies and then his girl partner dies. And he's like, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you. Um, So super fair. Uh, um, I just looked back because I had to know. And Shuya and Noriko were number 15, respectively. So now, yeah, it makes sense. Um, So they kind of like tied that back in or whatever, but. Um, and instead of killing each other, that is not the actual challenge this time. They are sent back to the island because that is where uh, Nuriko and Shuyo have holed up. That's where their terrorist group is. Somehow they made it back to the island. After vowing to run away, they've decided to go back. Okay. So erasing some of the events of the first film. And they are tasked to kill the terrorist group. If they kill them before the end of three days, they're all free to go. <laughs> So it's not Battle Royale. They just are a a forced army that has the necklaces. Okay, the machine guns make more sense now. By the middle of the second day, all but four are dead. Wow, that's worse than the Battle Royale. Yeah, so <laughs> we are not made to care about 
these 40 kids. We were made to care about a couple. One of them is B. Takashi's daughter. And so that's kind of the hook of it is she's going to get revenge. But then we learn that Shuyo and, goodness, what is her name? Shuya and Noriko. Noriko. They did run away from Japan and I believe went to Syria or Turkey. I don't know that it was actually said, but basically. Was it one of the countries that the United States has invaded? I think so. And they saw all of the, like, sadness in all of their faces and stuff. And so that's what made them, like, basically they decided to come back to Japan and, and fight what was for their, it, it is, it is a very interesting choice. And, you know, I somewhat applaud it, especially, I mean, the fact that, you know, somebody took up the mantle for this that I don't know was ready to or wanted to even was kind of maybe forced into that situation. And I mean, it felt like a sequel in terms of like, how sometimes you know movies would be made in the 90s and then a sequel would follow up and you're like this is way different <laughs> and that's what this felt like i mean it was over the top and it was a war movie i mean the first hour or so like i said they're storming the beach and you know the terrorist group is shooting down at them as they're coming up onto the beach and i mean it's just it's just kids you don't even see the terrorist group for the first 30 or 40 minutes while they're running up the beach you just see pew 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 duck behind a thing like very interesting choices um, as far hmm. as changes go. Yeah, I, I had a hard time really grasping it. It was, I man, it was something else. I do know that the teacher then changes sides and kind of basically agrees to, I don't know. He ends up putting on a collar himself and also putting on a rugby uniform and diving and exploding. It was okay. a mess. All right. That was Battle Royale 2. I don't recommend the 2003 follow-up to the original 2000. You can just watch that first one. You know, maybe Battle Royale 2 is about how the United States, along with many other countries who get a lot of power, send poor or otherwise underprivileged people to go wage their wars for them, maybe? Why don't presidents fight the war? Why do they always send the poor? Exactly. Like maybe, maybe, maybe that's what they were getting at. Like there, maybe there's gotta be a reason to include all those items together. Let's move on to the last topic. Well, uh, as you could tell, I really want to figure out what this all means. So we're going to talk about what battle Royale means. And a lot of this, like you said, it's, it's kind of topics that are touched on gently that other movies and like the hunger games touches upon much more heavily but I wanted to talk about uh, some of the symbolism and the meaning and the themes. Uh, one thing is the movie starts with the um, a swarm of reporters who are going to go see the winner of a battle royale. Something that that could be about is like just to show that the government is using this also as a mode of fear, essentially. Like you said, it's not quite like the Hunger Games where it's televised for entertainment, but it's more like, how scary, you know? And hope this doesn't happen to you to keep everyone in line. So there's an idea with that, with the kind of authoritarian government idea. Another that I wanted to talk about was when Kitano's in the classroom with Class 3B and introducing Battle Royale Act and none of the kids seem to have heard about it. None of them know this is a thing that could happen to them. They don't remember it passing, even though it was in recent, like in their lifetimes, which is just interesting because I, I think that's a good commentary on the way that 
governments can kind of quietly pass things that people don't even know about until it starts affecting them, even extremely problematic things that they probably should know about or that do affect them directly, that they just don't really have a way of knowing until it's on them. Did you have <laughs> any ideas as to what it would be about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that really, I mean, especially with how much the second film harped on it, I think that there was a big motive to show the disconnect between youth and adults and just mm. how kind of ridiculous the the internal and external struggle between the two groups is and how, I mean, there's there's got to be something there with like the forced maturity that adults frequently put on young people. Mm. Um Something I had read of an interview from the, I believe it was the director, talked about when he was, uh, when he was a young man, when he was, I think it was when he was a teen, um, it was during World War II, and his class was one of those pulled to work for the war effort, and they were bombed, and would essentially take cover behind each other's bodies, because there was nowhere to mm. go. And that being kind of a lesson for himself in terms of like, you kind of quickly learn who your friends are. And I guess that just maybe goes with the notion as well of like, you grow up quick. Like he's been in a position where the government put him in a spot where he had to become a lot more mature instantly. Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely a coming of age story in, in a number of ways. And I think so. Anything else? There was one other uh, bit that I wanted to talk about. Well, a couple other bits, sorry. So Kitano, um, during this movie, it's kind of referenced a couple of times that he doesn't get along well with his daughter. There's a couple of phone calls they have where they're clearly arguing and she's being kind of bratty towards him. And he's not very happy with her. And I, I was trying to make sense of the cut scenes. They're these really weird um, scenes that I guess are actually largely part of the extended version. Like most of these weren't in the original. Do you mean the flashbacks? Right. The basketball scene was, but then it was extended in the extended version. And the, there's this kind of dream sequence of Noriko and Kitano eating ice cream and chatting. Um, And then that's brought back at the end where this time you can hear their dialogue. And then there's the cutscene with Mitsuko, who is one of the scarier classmates who's killing people, um, kind of showing her background that gives an idea of like why she is so ready to fight. I mostly just wanted to lean into the Noriko and Kitano cutscene because it caught me by surprise and I really didn't know what to make of it. Uh, but one theory I've seen that makes perfect sense to me is that essentially he sees her like his daughter, like a replacement for his daughter. Maybe I should have caught on to this better because at the very end, when he says, like, kill me, he is threatening her with a gun that turns out to be fake. It's just water. He would basically, he would never hurt her. And even during the game, he stepped in to protect her at one point. And he wanted her to win. And he wanted her essentially to be his daughter. And so all the while he's fighting with his daughter, Noriko has actually been the sole student of this class to treat him with any sort of respect. 
when when he's shot after attacking Noriko, then he takes one last phone call from his daughter, his real daughter, before dying in front of Noriko. It's just a very... The movie puts them side by side, I think, for that purpose. Which also underlines the whole kids v. adults thing. And that kind of flows into the other topic of this I wanted to explore. Um, just point out, really, just that... Uh, the battle royale could be seen as an exploration of just teen emotions. Mm. Like the way everything feels heightened and important and big as a teenager with, you know, a girl doesn't want to sleep with a boy. And so he threatens her because, well, what if, you know, like maybe, maybe I can just force my way. And she says, Mm, big no to you and it turns into a bloody battle in which the boy dies <laughs> and it's kind of a an exaggerated ballooned out version of what can kind of go on in smaller scales in a high school like a physical manifestation of all the emotional trauma and drama that is happening to teens that are essentially stuck in a battlefield of high school together. Mm. Anyway, just a few themes and ideas that I thought would be worth pointing out, and I'm sure there are tons more. Um, so definitely reach out to us if you think we've missed a key idea or theme. We'd love to discuss it more. One more thing before we kind of wrap everything up here. I also wanted to point out and recommend another film called battles without honor and humanity. It is the Yakuza film or sorry, the Yakuza papers volume one. And this is also directed by Kinji Fukasaku. Uh, but this is back in 1973. And this is the first part of a five part series of films that he created that start, uh, right after world war two and kind of documents the rise of the Yakuza games in Japan and I watched this first one and I intend to go through and watch the rest of them at all at some point uh, because it was very, very good. And the further away from it I am, the more I've really enjoyed it. I think that um, Kinji's uh, use of hyper violence is utilized very well in these, whereas it's kind of gimmicky in Battle Royale and seems like it's kind of a gore fest talking about and showing what all went on with these Yakuza families and the kind of interwoven war that they go through as they rise and fall in power um, uses that hyperviolence very, very well. So if you want a good gangster Godfather-esque power struggle film, the first one is Battles Without Honor and Humanity. Uh, I recommend the Yakuza Papers. I think we're going to be revisiting other Kinji Fukusaku work in the future. Maybe that'll be next year, or we'll maybe do another one. Another one of his works is Tora, 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 and that's supposed to be very good as well. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard of that. He also did some like really, really low-budget B films that I'd like to watch maybe at some point, like Message from Space. Ooh. Anyway, that was all. Uh, do you have a lesson for us? Yeah, so this is inspired by the title cards. Um, I They were really intriguing to me. There were these little... Uh, intertitle cards that would show up just on occasion throughout the movie. And um, so I picked one, which was when Shuya is asking his friend, 
I think it's Nobu, who he likes. And that's when we find out that the friend has a crush on Noriko. I'm just going to teach you essentially how to ask that. Is there anyone you like right now? Nice. So the whole thing is, ima ski na hito iru. Ima ski ski na na hito hito ski na hito iru inu iru iru. Mm, that's it. Um, in the title card, it's got a ka denoting a question mark. You could say iru no iru ka. You could just say iru and with a question mark. And if you're in context, it makes sense. But essentially, ima is now. Suki or ski is like. Hito is a person. And iru is the verb to exist for, used for living things. So, ima ski na hito iru. Nice. All right. Well, that is going to do it for us for the month of June. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. We're going to be back next month on july 15th for miss hokusai oh yay all right we'll definitely tune in for our july episode and stick around for our fact check coming up uh just after this yeah next month it'll be it's an animated animated film so it's crazy to think about do you know what our last animated movie was ponyo yeah that was march i don't know time's huh. weird the years yeah. flying by it means we're going to be over halfway through the year. So if you have any recommendations for 2023, any movies you want us to touch on, reach out to us and let us know. Um, that way we can make sure we get in, get get those movies in on time. What we like to do is get those in by the 1st of December. That way we can kind of finalize that and announce those movies in December. Just kind of, you know, you, got, you still have time. Just wanted to, to put that out there. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you all so much for listening. Jamata. Jamata. Hi, this is Donna, and I'm back with your fact check. First, Brandon said he recently enjoyed watching Saint Maud, directed by Rose Glass, but wasn't sure if it was an Amazon Prime exclusive. If you're interested in watching it, the good news is it's available on a lot of platforms, including Roku Channel, Vudu, Paramount Plus, and Apple TV. Next, we referenced the movie Hanabi, starring Beat Takeshi, and I mistakenly guessed it was called Hibana. While Hanabi translates to fireworks, Hibana translates to spark. The two words are made of the same two kanji characters, but in opposite order. He, or B, is made with the kanji for fire, and Hana, or Bana, is made with the kanji for flower. Secret bonus Japanese lesson! Later, we couldn't recall the Hunger Games character Pita's last name. As much as I wanted it to be bread, it's actually Malark. There are some other nitpicky Hunger Games details we could squabble over in this fact check, but I'd recommend instead that you watch or read the series for yourself, so we don't totally ruin it for you. Next, when I talked about the movie classification system in Japan, 
I was unsure if there were loopholes where a person under the age restriction could see a movie if they were accompanied by an adult. Based on the rating descriptions, I'd guessed no, but we would love to hear from you if you have any experience in Japanese cinema. Have you snuck into a Japanese movie that was restricted to your age? Had an adult chaperone your attendance to an R18 plus film? We want to hear about it. Let us know on Twitter or Instagram at OkiOkiShow or send an email to OkiOkiShow at gmail.com. And that's O-K-I-O-K-I-E-S-H-O-W. You can also leave us a voicemail at anchor.fm slash show. That's all for the fact check this time, but if we missed anything, or if you'd like to throw in your two cents, just let us know. And be sure to check out our July movie pick, the 2015 animated film Miss Hokusai. That's H-O-K-U-S-A-I. It's about the daughter of the famous artist, Katsushika Hokusai, who created such iconic works as The Great Wave off Kanagawa that we've referenced here on the show before. Thank you for listening and sharing the Oki Oki Show with your friends. Until next time, Kiwotskete.